more stories in the end. Just make it a good one, eh? I'm Don Hall, and this is the Peculiar Journeys Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Okay, this is the final episode of season two. It's been an interesting ride interviewing people for their stories, and I I really do. I hope you've enjoyed that whole process as much as I have. Next season is going to be a split between stories of my tattoos. I hope they'll be more interesting than that sounds. And a walk down memory lane as I detail stories of the rise of WNEP Theater, which is a theater company I founded out in the 90s. Uh, one of this uh, season's episodes was about that, and I realized that would be kind of an interesting thing is sort of looking at the environment of the 90s in Chicago that really kind of fostered that kind of growth because there were a lot of theater companies that uh, were founded in the 90s here in Chicago. For this episode... Well, Saturday was my 52nd birthday. A tradition that I've employed since I was 13 years old has been to take some time and reflect on the year I just ended and work out any wisdom that I might have sussed out. Now, I can't necessarily claim any real wisdom um, from my journey, as I tend to learn many of the same lessons over and over again until they stick. But for the first part of this episode, I went, I went ahead and went back five years and pulled a few nuggets. Maybe one of these days I'll pull some from when I was in eighth grade and ninth grade and tenth grade. It's pretty redundant, but it's mostly about girls. But this time I went back five years to 47, and I pulled a few nuggets from each year to see if I had any patterns. And sure enough, a pattern did emerge. So the second half will be lessons of my year 52. All right, from my 47th year, so this is my 48th birthday, things that I learned, uh, one of the things that I wrote down is it's time to stop focusing on being successful and begin focusing on being significant. This actually came from Shannon Kaysen. If you listen to Homemade Stories, uh, then you know who Shannon is. He said that to me on a train trip to Lake Crystal, I want to say. I think that's true. Um, I wrote... As I get older, the movie Groundhog Day becomes more and more meaningful. And this is what I wrote about it. It's a genuinely funny Bill Murray vehicle and has some incredibly funny moments, but it's also a hugely funny film that has an unusual message that other Hollywood comedies never come close to in the promotion of romantic love or man-boys growing up. Murray plays Phil Connors, a Pittsburgh news reporter who believes he is above everyone. He believes he's special and important and looks down at anyone and everyone in his path. His cameraman, Chris Elliott, in a role I can watch him in and not feel like punching him in the nuts, his producer Andy McDowell, the town elders, the waitresses, the town folks, everyone. And he begins reliving the same day. Now, I read that uh, somewhere that if mathematically calculated, Phil relives February 2nd for over 30 years of days. He commits suicide over and over. He sleeps with every remotely available woman. He robs banks. And then he decides that his producer is his producer is his way out of it. That if she falls in love with him, he will move on to February 3rd. And it gets to the point where he's won her heart in a fake and manipulative manner, and he's still stuck in purgatory. 
And so then he decides, while he's still there, to access his natural curiosity about the world and learn things. He learns to play the piano, to ice sculpt, to cook. And then he starts helping people, changing the tire that always goes flat, catching a kid that always falls from the tree. And he begins to love the people around him. He sees them as fully realized human beings. He no longer feels that he's special. He sees that in this town of Hicks and Rubes that he is, in fact, the least of them all that they are special and he is common. And only then does he fall in love and that love is returned and he wakes up on February 3rd, which is coincidentally my birthday. You're going to start seeing that pattern. Um, Also from uh, year 47, none of us is as big a deal as we think we are which kind of goes in line with Groundhog Day. From year 48, this is my 49th birthday, eventually outrage gets a little old. It's a marathon, not a sprint. It isn't the insults that matter, but our reaction to them that does. And those are three from that year. From year 49, my... uh, uh, This wasn't my 50th birthday. Maybe it is. I can't remember. Anyway, get engaged on the third date. So this was year 49. This was my 49th birthday. Okay. It is far less likely that people are against you rather than simply being for themselves. And I wrote, the simple and easy way to see the world is us versus them, everyone else versus me. The common way to view the world is through the lens of yourself. This movie is about you. You are the star. And everyone in the film is motivated to do the things they do and say the things they say based on their specific relationship to you. Reality is pretty much exactly the opposite of that. Most people uh, barely know you exist. Most people couldn't care less about your existence. And then when that cabbie cuts you off in traffic, it's highly likely it has nothing to do with you personally at all. Comcast treats you badly, not about you personally. Bank fucks up your account, not personal. The barista who makes a mistake on your soy latte cappuccino with caramel swirls and a splash of privilege didn't make the mistake on purpose. You got towed and booted, not because you're someone the Department of Motor Vehicles gives a shit about because you can't park well. Most people you encounter are not doing anything against you any more than that red light is taking so long to personally vex you or the snow covered your car to make you late for work. As hard as it is to come to grips with, each one of us is pretty insignificant. But there's power in that lack of overreaching importance, so relax. And there's wisdom in recognizing that insignificance. Keep that in mind. We're starting to see the thread from year 50. You don't need to know where you're going in order to get there. For all of our differences, both those we control and those beyond our control, we're all just snowflakes destined to melt in the great sea of humanity. And this is, again, the thread. I am not important. And I wrote, the worst fiction about ourselves that we can embrace is that of our own importance in a world that will quickly discard us when we are no further use. This is not to say I am despised or even disliked by most of the people I work with and whom I with whom I interact. This is to say that I'm not on many people's list of end-of-the-world essentials. I know who's on my list. Taking the time to realize of those people who has me on their list is well worth it. Once I know this, it is then up to me to continue to foster, nurture, and take care of those tenuous connections. Be the best husband I can be, be the best son, the best brother, the best friend. And do not take it personally that I'm on so small a list. While small in numbers, the impact of each person on my list is monumental. 
A plastic cup doesn't take it personally. An aluminum can doesn't get butt hurt if it isn't invited to a party or gets fired. Only in the Pixar film about used books does Robert Boswell's tumble down fall into a spiral of self-doubt and despair, only to be talked back into believing himself by Tom Bodette's The Free Fall of Webster Cummings, set to a Randy Newman theme. While it's deeply personal, it is likely, likewise universally human. Find your people. Be with your people. Take care of them. Protect them, support them. Like an improv scene where partners strive to do only one thing, make their partners shine, you become vital to their journey. Then, instead of importance, you achieve significance. Ah, the thread. And from 51, 51st birthday. The opinions of people have the value you assign them. Indulgence in emotional reaction and ego is the downfall of everyone. And part of the thread, I am not the hero of my own story. And I wrote, in what one could arguably call the age of narcissism, considering oneself the hero of one's own narrative arc seems pretty normal. As if we were all each in a movie about us, and as the one person watching the whole thing, it makes perfect sense that the hero of each story is the viewer. Except, no hero of any story sees theirself as the hero. Harry Potter isn't the hero of those books. Rocky isn't the hero of his films. They are the protagonists. But if they were to see themselves as the heroes, they suddenly would not be the heroes. So, I am the protagonist of my story, but not the hero. That is not to say there are no heroes in my story. In fact, there are lots of them. My mom, my grandfather, my dad, my sister, my wife, teachers who stood for something, mentors who guided me along the path, doctors, a few employees, employers, some of my friends. There are plenty of heroes in the Nicholas Nickleby version of my 51 years. I'm just not one of them. And now here is what I wrote on my 52nd birthday. This was uh, just Saturday. And this is, and, you, and like I said, the, the narrative is pretty pervasive as we get there. But there are some nice, I think there's some nice things. This is a little bit more in depth. Oh, what a year it's been. Uh, <laughs> half a century plus two lessons of my 52nd year on the planet. All right, in no particular order, the narrative of my 52nd year included packing up my cubicle at Navy Pier and being thrust into the world of the self-employed one month to the day after my 51st birthday. Trump became president and everyone lost their minds over it in the navigation of self-employment, learning that some people and organizations are going to feign giving me employment in order to hear my cool event ideas and then use those ideas without giving me cash. Um, I found myself despising the extreme left as much as I disdain the alt-right in its embrace of political destruction tactics. I went on a trip to London and Edinburgh with the love of my life on our third anniversary. I published a book of word jazz, which is a sentence I could have never predicted writing in all my time, but it's true nonetheless. Uh, I produced events in both New York and LA for Audible. I did some consulting. Uh, Literate Ape is a business is beginning to thrive. I finally committed to compiling that I Believe book after like five years of saying I was going to do it. Lots of podcasting. Uh, Patreon, if you are of the, the stripe that you can throw a couple bucks my way every month, uh, be a Patreon subscriber. Now, the sheer number of lessons learned from 52 is, is kind of ridiculous. I've kind of windowed them down. Some years yield a few solid rules of thumb as I hitchhike down the road of life. 
others hand me a stream of unending guideposts to keep in check like a consistent smack in the back of the head. It leaves a five-inch section of my skull numb and bleeding and a headache in my left eye from my brain being bounced around. And while I feel like a rock'em sock'em robot with the head sprung up, I'm still standing. And thus, the annual categorization of lessons learned and heeded for my future begins. Lesson. Anger is a tool of both construction and destruction. Best to learn to control that lightsaber. This seems obvious. It's not really much of a leap of wisdom. Anger gets tricky, however, when divorced from rational thought. It's a powerful emotion, and as emotions tend to run, it is the one just next to fear that fuels some of the most destructive impulses imaginable. On, our, on a societal scale, anger begets retribution and revenge. Twin brothers of action most would agree are not constructive almost in any way. As the Me Too rebellion took off, the head of steam became a yop for wholesale belief in the word of women, generally a constructive thing, yeah? followed by a wide swath battle cry to castigate all men, which is a thoughtlessly destructive impulse at best. Personally, I found myself still bitterly angry at how I'd been attacked the year before, and I couldn't find a rational thought to calm me down from my five-year assistant and friend knifing me in the back to get ahead at work. I had to struggle to find that inner spot to bring my rage into control so that the rage could be a tool rather than a weapon. Now, what I know and I have known is that anger, like fear, joy, apathy, it's an emotional state. And emotional states are well within our control. Despite the current forced viewpoint that motion, emotions are just as valid and heated as rational thought, obeying the dictates of your emotional states is a road to great strife. Feels good, but it doesn't generally end well. I've learned that suppressing your emotions is the road to ulcers and alcoholism, but that control of them is the path to the force. And yes, I am aware of mixing the worlds of Star Trek and Star Wars. Sue Lesson. Fighting fire with fire is an incredibly stupid way to put out a fire. Lesson. People are going to cheat you. Trust them anyway. I know this. Trust is given, not earned. The element of that is that when you get into the practice of trusting without some initial investment, going out on that limb and counting on people to just be fucking square with you, you're going to be disappointed as often as rewarded. Operative phrase as often, remembering the times you trusted and got popped in the jaw for it is easy. Broken trust is a bit jarring and your sense of injustice comes into play. Best to remember the equal amount of times you trusted and it went well as often. Here's a metaphor. You trust every restaurant to present you with a good meal. You go in, about half the time, you get a subpar dining experience on some level. Do you then dismiss all restaurants as crap? Of course not. You keep going with the possibility of a splendid dinner. Sometimes you can go to your favorite restaurant and still get a shit meal. And you go again because you trust that place. In year 52, like I said, I was backstabbed by a five-year friend and colleague. I had my freelance event ideas used without compensation by people I had worked with for a decade or more. Friends who actively chose to support and befriend folks who had attacked my character. Lots of broken trust all the way around. But I also 
have a wife who has been wholly and unrelentingly supportive of me, a friend who's helped in the building stages of a digital enterprise that he and I launched together, a friend who hired me out of the gate for some national gigs when I suddenly was no longer employed, another who in his attempt to gain a bigger, better job included me in his plans should he succeed. I will choose because, hey folks, it's all about choices here, to focus on the unbroken thriving trust rather than wallow in the grime of the untrustworthy. Trust is given, not earned. Lesson. Kindness is best when it is not demanded. Lesson. The block list is a universal net positive. Best to get out into the world. And I spent an awful lot of my time in the second half of 52 holed away in our apartment. A hermit wearing Uggs connected to the world through a screen. While there isn't anything wrong with recovery from a major life change by burrowing down and avoiding human contact, strategizing the new road I'm traveling, recharging the battery, so to speak, it's a process that can become addictive. Via the fetid spiral of social media, I found that I didn't want to be around a lot of people. I found that prolonged and solitary contact with forums that promote knowledge of everyone's fucking opinions, and more specifically, the realization that so many of those I called friends associate regularly with individuals I decided to cull from my life, well, they just became toxic. Plainly put, viewing the world through social media caused me to really dislike humanity. I know a lot of theater people, but the strident, angry polemics and brazen self-righteousness of a very small sect of rage profiteers tainted the lot. On one hand, the choice to spend my time with folks I no longer need to spend my time with is healthy and smart. On the other, hiding from everyone out of a suspicion that I'll randomly have to share space with someone I've come to despise is easy and short-lived. The block list eliminates those voices I've grown weary of, clearing the way for new friendships, and allowing the disgust in humanity to subside. Lesson. Aging hastens the crumbling of the body, but getting old is all in the dissipation of the spirit. Lesson. Your one source of income is the one that will disappear, diversify, or perish. Nothing on this earth is permanent. The complacent life refuses to acknowledge this simple fact. As I saw the writing on the wall of amazing colleagues slowly be thinned away from the comfortable job in public radio, Tim Akamoff, Nyla Boodoo, Jason Saldana, Jill Shepard, Justin Kaufman, Jesse Trevino, Robin Lynn, uh, it just kept going on. I should have seen it coming. So when it was my time to go, that solid ground I'd convinced myself was secure was my only source of income. Going forward, I'll make sure that the multiple methods of making a few bucks is the rule. Take one away and have several more in place is just a smarter way to go. The real key, I think, is to find ways of making a buck that enrich you in other ways as well. This isn't the simple work for a nonprofit thing, but a commitment to remain curious and open no matter what work you do. To to remain curious is to remain young at heart. Lesson. The American obsession with youth is a crippling disease. Lesson. Change is turbulent, so keep your balance. Enthusiasm and industry keep you on your feet. After five decades on the planet, with at least three of them solidly on my own, the only constant I see is change. 
As soon as you get all complacent and comfortable, life has a way of throwing a monkey wrench into the machinery and knocking things off course. Now, I'm not a graceful man. One reason I sold my motorcycle was that my balance was getting a bit worse, and I realized that sooner rather than later, I was going to take a huge spill off that beautiful Honda Rebel and not walk away from it. I'm no more graceful when it comes to the balance of the mind and spirit. I'm frequently a bull in a china shop, and you are the china. Now, this is the thing about change. It's inevitable. We knew that. It's constant. It always feels like the boat is sinking. Bouts of despair are common. Moments of clarity are likewise almost mundane in their regularity. In 52 years, I've had plenty of changes in course, and it never gets easier to weather. The key, I believe, is to greet each big shift in navigation with a sense of wonder and curiosity. Instead of clumsily scrambling to find your footing, go ahead and fall. Roll. Get up. The new will be different, and there will be new things to do and learn. When you remember the most essential truth of human existence, that it always, always ends the same way, the trials and obstacles don't seem so grim. I know I'm going to die sooner rather than later because I'm more than halfway past my expiration date, so I might as well enjoy what time I have. Trying to control the uncontrollable is only squandering of that time. Is that grace? I don't know but it'll have to do. Lesson. Being creative and making art is an essential requirement of humanity. Lesson. Read the chapter you're on, not the chapter you just finished. It's an odd lesson to include in the list of backward reflection, but it still sums up an important piece of wisdom gleaned from this particular year. When things didn't go the way I thought they would, it's natural to go back and question all my choices. What if I'd saved more money in anticipation of getting the axe? How would things be different if I'd accepted the increased money-centric version of WBEZ? I should have trusted fill-in-the-blank with a name, and maybe I would have been fill-in-the-blank with the state of being. The downside of constantly revisiting your last chapter is that you tend to lose sight of the one you're in. And like a runner obsessing about that trip in the leg of the last race you just passed, you lose momentum by looking back constantly. Let the past be instructive, not destructive. Lesson. I'd rather die of overuse than rusting out. And the final lesson, and this is where it all comes together, and I, I, you know, perhaps I've learned this and perhaps I'll just keep learning it. Embrace your irrelevance in the world. We are not the center because there is no center. When I flipped over into my 50s for the first time, one of the things I felt I had learned was that I am not important. I wrote this. The worst fiction about ourselves that we can embrace is that of our own importance in a world that will quickly discard us when we have when we are of no further use. Now, granted, this came from a place of feeling somehow unappreciated, maybe a, a tad self-pitying. I'd been snubbed by the cast and crew of the NPR show I'd been house managing. They had a Christmas party, and I wasn't invited, so I got pissy about it. I started looking around and realized that there were more than a few instances of people I had felt I had been in service to, groups I felt I worked hard for, who seemed to discard me in those types of social circumstance. Actors for whom I had, in my view, bent over backwards to provide opportunities for who, when the guilt fell from the lily, took no pause to ins hurl insult my way. I was compared to Pol Pot by one of them. My ex-wife's mealy husband took pot shots from the shadows of the internet despite my producing every fucking play he ever wrote, and I became bitter and self-involved. This lesson, however, keeps hammering away at me. 
This self-pity is exhausting after a while, and bitterness is so in conflict with my internal optimism, the lesson was bound to sink in at some point. It isn't that I'm not important. It's that I'm not important to most people. I'm not even important to people whose importance was high on my own priority list. For so long, I placed importance on what others thought of me, of my status within the theater community, the public school community, the storytelling community, the public radio community. Time and time again, these systems became a place where I felt important, but when stripped of that status within those tribes, I was easily forgotten and discarded. I know that I'm important to my family. I know that I'm important to my wife. Joe Janes once referred to me as more brother than his own brothers. That's important. My lovely friend Vanessa Harris is important to me. Her well-being is something I reflect upon frequently, and I believe that she considers mine as well. The lesson, I think, is to pay attention to those whose importance is paramount to me rather than worry one self-pitying second on how relevant I am. One becomes important by recognizing the importance of others. On a rock with seven billion souls scurrying around it like ants on a watermelon, there is no center of things. My universe is not defined by my status or what others outside of my list think of me. It's not determined by my accomplishments as each is a masterpiece etched into the sand as the tide comes in. My universe is distinct only by those I place upon higher value than I do myself. And there's a freedom in acknowledging one's lack of significance. It means that as long as I pay tribute to those I love and value, I have nothing else to lose. A man with nothing to lose is a formidable thing. And while it's true that in the grand scheme of things, I'm just a minute speck of humanity, I'm off cigarettes now and I'm smoking a pipe. So I certainly look more important. And thus ends the second season of Peculiar Journeys. Season 3 will go back to the weekly podcast and episode 27 will drop March 5th. So if you're looking forward to it, that's when it'll drop. For those Patreon subscribers, thank you. Jackie Volbrecht, Todd Guttner, Rebecca Languth, Jennifer Strom, Erica Napolitano. It's really a great feeling knowing that you not only support the podcast, but have supported it financially as well. So with that in mind, thank you. I hope you've enjoyed the second season. I hope you're looking forward to the third season. If you enjoy any of these, please go to iTunes, review it, take two minutes and review the show. Just that, that helps me and it helps, uh, you know, sort of like bandwidth, that kind of stuff. If you do have any money and you're listening and you just say, hey, you know what? I really liked all this stuff, so I'm going to give you a buck a month. Uh, one of my jokes I wrote, a dollar a month is $11 a year. Please help Don with his math tutoring. But uh, that's the idea. So uh, please enjoy uh, your month. Uh, enjoy your your, your fall. Or your, your, actually, we're going to get into spring. Enjoy the winter. Enjoy your time. Listen to some stories. Find your way to go out and tell people some stories. Um, it's a great time to do so. Peculiar Journeys is a bi-winkly storytelling podcast produced, voiced, and edited by myself in my apartment above a bar in Wicker Park. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or catch it on SoundCloud. Thank you. <laughs>